we've got some familiarity with the theme, the story. Of course, this is an incredibly famous story. The story is told, you've probably heard it, of a man who was taken to jail. His first evening in jail, all of the inmates are taken out of their respective cells and they gather together in the courtyard where they sit around and they have some sort of sharing time and Somebody in the midst of this uh, event simply calls out a number and everybody bursts out laughing. You heard this one? And the new guy, who's the new inmate, is listening to this and another silence and somebody else calls out another number and again everybody bursts out laughing and this goes on for the whole hour, hour and a half that they're together. Then when he goes back to the cell, he asks his soulmate, what was all that about? People would say a number and everybody would burst out laughing. He said, oh, that's how we tell jokes around here. We've been in here so long, we know all of the jokes. We've heard them all a hundred times. So we've numbered them. Just think about a situation. We just say the number. We all know what it is. Burst out laughing. Next night, same thing happens. They gather together in the courtyard and somebody sings out a number and everybody laughs. Happens a couple more times and in the period of silence the new inmate thinks he'll give it a go. So he sings out a number. Nobody laughs. Thought that was strange, didn't say anything and went on and other people called out numbers and everybody laughed. When he went back to the cell he said to his cellmate, what was that about? I called out a number and nobody laughed. To which his cellmate said to him, well you know how it is, some people can tell jokes and some people can't. The danger with telling jokes in sermons is you won't hear anything else. You'll go away and that's all you're going to remember. Well, remember this, that this story, 1 Samuel chapter 3, it's a little bit like we could number the Bible stories. You know, number one, Noah and the ark. Number two, Abraham taking Isaac up on the mountain. Number three, Moses and the bulrushes and the ten plagues. Number four, David and Goliath. Number five, Jonah and the whale, well, a big fish. Number six, Israelites crossing the Red Sea. Number seven, Daniel in the lion's den. Number eight, the call of Samuel in the temple. You've heard it. You know it. It's familiar to it. You're familiar with it. You've probably told other people the story. So we should just close in prayer because you all understand it. But the encouragement... Our purpose in gathering together is that we might listen to what God has got to say to us. Charles Haddon Spurgeon used to always teach and practice that when somebody else was preaching, he would always pray what Samuel prayed, Lord, speak, your servant is listening. Speak to me. The preacher is preaching. Let me hear your voice to me through him. That's a great model, isn't it? That should be our attitude as well. But the fear could be like Franklin D. Roosevelt, once President of the United States, who was often in his process as President, you know, on the receiving end, on the end of long lines of people greeting them and saying things. And it dawned upon him at one point that nobody was really listening to him. They were just going through the motions. And so he, being who he was, 
he decided that when he shook the hands of these dignitaries and these ambassadors and politicians and everybody else, he simply leant forward and he simply whispered, I murdered my grandmother this morning. (laughs) Guests responded with phrases like, keep up the good work. (laughs) We're proud of you. God bless you, sir. That's marvellous. They weren't listening. Until one time, the ambassador from Bolivia actually did listen. I think I I murdered my grandmother this this morning. The ambassador from Bolivia leant forward and he said, I'm sure she had it coming. (laughs) We're here to listen. Not to me. We're here to listen to God, what he might say to us through this part of his word. If you're visiting this morning, you find us in the beginning of a series. It's our third week in the book of Samuel and our morning church services. And we're going to go over the next seven or eight weeks up to just before Easter. We'll get up to about chapter 7. It's the story primarily about God replacing, God supplying godly leadership for Israel through the person of Samuel. It's in that transition time of Eli with his sons are the priests and the key leaders and they are corrupt, they are very ungodly. And Eli, we heard about this morning, we'll hear a bit more about um, is being replaced by a younger leader, but a godly one, in Samuel, who will become a prophet, who will become a judge in Israel and who will act also as a priest. In your Bibles it says in verse 1, Now the boy Samuel continued serving the Lord under Eli's supervision. Word from God in those days was rare. Revelatory visions were infrequent. God wasn't speaking. It was a time of silence and usually times of silence from God indicate discipline, judgment, God withdrawing. Doesn't always mean that, but often does mean that. God will not give the privilege or the blessings of his word, his direction to people who are in rebellion against him. The author of Samuel goes on to say that Eli's eyes had begun to fail. They were, with the ageing process, I know what this is about, many of us do. Things that were once clear, you now need help, you now need assistance. Well, I guess back in Eli's day they didn't have glasses or optometrists, so he lived with just failing eyesight. The Jewish commentators, and John Gill particularly picks this up, The Jewish commentators used to take this, not just simply a note about physically deteriorating eyesight, but that it's also an indication of what was happening to him physically was what was happening in the land spiritually. Things were getting dull. The light was not shining brightly. That Eli was not seeing clearly, physically or spiritually. Well, on one of those occasions, this story tells us that Eli, it was night time, and that he was lying down in his room, in his place, somewhere in the tabernacle. And uh, Samuel was likewise lying down in his room. And at this point, the passage tells us that the ark of God was also there in the temple, because in the next chapter, the ark of God is going to be removed. But this is back before that happened, when the ark of God was still there. Eli and Samuel are at rest. The lights, the night lights in the temple have been lit It was the duty of the priests that they would make this special oil and the the lamps would be lit at sunset 
and they would be put out at sunrise. They would burn all night. You don't need the light during the day because the day provides it. But during the night, the candlestick in the temple would burn all night. And this passage tells us, it's not, I don't think, just a reference uh, again to the physical. It is certainly that. That the lamp was burning, so it's not yet dawn. It's not yet when the lamp would go out. So it's night time. It's early hours of the morning. Uh, but the physical reveals the spiritual again. That in the midst of darkness, there is still light. There is still hope. Uh, God is about to do something. I think that's what the, st- the author of the book is wanting us to get. In the midst of this occasion, Samuel's asleep, Eli's asleep, the light's burning. The Lord says, Samuel. He hears a voice. A real voice, a voice that to him he identified with Eli. And he wakes up, he gets up and he goes to the next room where Eli is and he says, here I am, you called me. No, I didn't. Go back and lie down, go back to bed. Eli just thinking that he's a young guy who has hearing voices or he's had a dream or something and he's coming to his room. That's repeated. And then in verse 7, it's explained to us why this was going on. Samuel did not yet know the Lord. The word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. I think what the, the author means by saying this to us is that Samuel had not heard God before. He knew God, knew about God, was serving God, was ministering to the Lord under Eli's supervision, had been doing that since his mother Hannah had brought him to the temple as a, a young guy, four or five years old. Now he is growing. We don't know how old he is in this passage. Ten? Don't know, not told. Is a young guy who had not heard and maybe had not even heard that God did this stuff because the word of the Lord was rare in those days. In fact, from the time of Moses, two, three hundred years beforehand, to the time of Eli, down to now, there's only reference to about three prophets. Deborah the prophetess, another prophet who came just before Gideon, and now this one in chapter 2, who came to tell Eli about God's judgment on him. Three times in 300 years, three prophets. That's not a lot of communication. That's the equivalent of us of hearing from God once since Captain Cook discovered this land. Once. Maybe twice. That's it. That's not often, is it? What a great blessing it is that we have the scriptures to us, but we'll come back to that. Let's move on. Verse 7 reminds us, Samuel did not yet know the Lord, not yet, He's going to. He's going to discover and encounter God and increasingly in his life he's going to walk with God. And so third time, God says, Samuel, when I read this during the week, I couldn't help but think, I wonder if God was, my sense of humour, was just having fun. Samuel. And he runs next door, gets sent back to bed. runs next door, comes back and he does it a third time. Do you think God was just having fun? No. Well, what was he doing? God has the amazing ability to be able to make himself very clear. Why wasn't he clear to Samuel? Well, because Samuel didn't know. That's one part. Whose attention was God trying to get? Samuel's? Yeah. And Eli's. Now, Eli will know God has spoken to Samuel. It was God setting Eli up as well as Samuel to enable him to be faithful 
to the message he was about to give because the passage says he was reluctant to do so. So God calls him third time. On the third time, he goes in and Samuel suddenly realises, he recognised, I know what's going on. This is God. Samuel, go back and lie down. If the Lord calls you again, say this. Speak, Lord. Your servant is listening. Samuel goes back, lies down. Not told if he went to sleep or not, but the passage says beautifully, did you notice it? Verse 10. Then the Lord came and stood near Samuel. It wasn't just the voice. Then the Lord came and stood nearby. And then he called Samuel. Samuel, speak, Lord. Your servant is listening. It's almost like this is beyond a dream. This is beyond just hearing an audible voice. This is some sort of divine encounter, some sort of perhaps some commentators say it's the manifestation of the Lord Jesus before Bethlehem. Uh, Theological word is a pre-incarnate manifestation of God. God sometimes turns up in the Old Testament physically, visibly, as he does in the person of Jesus. And the Lord gives him a message and from verse 11 all the way down to verse 17, somewhere down there, the message is one of judgment. Verse 14, it stops. Um, The message says, The Lord said to Samuel, Behold, or look, I'm about to do something in Israel. This is of national significance. I'm about to do something in Israel. And when anyone hears about it, both of his ears will tingle. Those it concerns, they're going to moan and groan. They're going to suffer and they will die. But even those who hear about it are going to be stunned, shocked. There is a God who hears, who weighs, who acts, who judges. On that day, verse 12, the Lord says to Samuel, on that day I will carry out against Eli everything that I have previously spoken about his house, chapter 2, from the beginning to the end. Verse 13. The NET says, you should tell him. So God is telling Samuel, you should tell him that I am about to judge his house forever because of the sin that he knew about. For his sins were blaspheming God, cursing God, and you did not restrain them. Eli did not. Therefore I have sworn on oath to the house of Eli, the sin of the house of Eli can never be forgiven by sacrifice or offering. Eli and his sons had crossed the point of no return. It was impossible for them to have atonement or forgiveness for their sin. Why? Because they had rejected the very means of the atonement. They were mocking and scorning the sacrifices of the Lord. There is no longer therefore any other way for the Lord to be able to forgive They rejected that way and so now there is no other way. God's word, it's very clear. That's a word of judgment. It's interesting, it's a word of judgment to Samuel about Eli. I wonder how often God does that. I wonder how often God speaks to person A about person B. And if God does do that, why does he do that? This passage doesn't quite tell us, but it gives us one indication. 
God was telling Samuel, so Samuel would tell Eli. That's how God often works in the body of Christ as well. He tells one person who ministers to others, the body needing one another. Well, that's certainly the case here. Does God do that still today? We all have the Spirit of God if we're followers of the Lord Jesus. Back in those days, that wasn't the case. Does God do that today? Does God tell one person something about somebody's life so that they will know something? That they, in fact, may be commissioned or sent by God to tell this other person? Does God do that? Yes, he does. But my experience, and I don't have all experience, my experience is if God does that, it's because this channel is closed. And God's been trying to talk to this person, but it's not getting through. So God tells somebody else to tell them, to shock them. I've certainly seen that. Sometimes God will tell us things or reveal to us things, give us an insight into things about something else going on in somebody else's life, not for us to say anything to anybody about, but for us to pray. He's informing us so that we may be interceding. That's also sometimes the case. So if God does tell you something about somebody else, ask, Lord, what what do you want me to do with this? Am I to share with them? Am I simply to pray for them? Why are you telling me this? Well, on this occasion, God told Samuel, and it's a heavy word of judgment, a heavy word of irreversible, permanent, irrevocable judgment. No forgiveness. God is a God who is true to his word. God said he was going to do this back in chapter 2 and now he's telling Samuel, now it's going to happen. Was Eli any worse than us? Well, he failed to rebuke his sons. We can make the same mistake. He certainly benefited from their greed. He misunderstood praying Hannah but corrected himself pretty quickly. He was slow on this occasion to recognise God's voice or call. Perhaps you could make that point. But Samuel did some good things. Samuel was also, uh, Eli did some good things because he helped Samuel. He may have messed up badly with his own two sons who were now older and whatever, Hophni and Phinehas. But at least with young Samuel, Eli was doing some good things. He may not have been the best model, best example, but... He did teach and show Samuel how to hear from God. He did coach him how to respond to God and he did, later on in this story, encourage him to be faithful. What did God tell you? Tell me everything, word for word. Don't hold anything back. Deliver the message. Don't dilute it, don't water it down, don't leave bits out. And Eli did bless Hannah and she had more children. He did some things well. And in many ways he's not too different to us. But we are not the judge. The God who is all-knowing, who weighs, as Hannah prayed in chapter 2 about, he's the God who weighs deeds. He is the one who judges. And on this occasion, the righteous judge says, Eli, enough is enough. Time's up. You're out. And the judgment will be delivered. Chapter 4. This no sacrifice to atone for sin, is it possible for us as God's people to likewise reject God's means of atonement, to scorn and mock the cross of Calvary? Well, the author of Hebrews tells us in chapter 10 that if we do that, 
there will not remain any atoning sacrifice for our sins. Chapter 10. It's not something to be played with. It's not something to be presumed upon. That if I sin, if I rebel against God, if I do my own thing, it's okay. I can come back to Jesus and he will forgive me. Well, that's true. You can come back to Jesus and he will forgive you. But this attitude of I can do my own thing, I can wander off into the wilderness and I will come back, you're presuming. I will come back. What happens if you don't? Book of Hebrews says, if you drift, if you do go that way, There's nothing left except a fearful prospect of judgment. Come tonight, hear Pastor David, who's going to talk about Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 to 4. The first of five warning passages in the book of Hebrews. We need to listen to what God is saying. So Eli is held responsible simply because he did not restrain his son. Listen to me. (laughs) Simply because he did not restrain his sons. We have an ability to be able to soften and tone down the impact of sin. We ought not to toy with sin. It's a terrible thing. Eli's sons were sinning, if you like, on the high beam. And Eli did nothing to dim it. He should have restrained them. But they were too old for him to act as their father. That's probably true, but he was their boss. He was the chief priest. He should have fired them. He should have removed them from the opportunity of sinning. As it is, he in fact facilitated their ongoing sin. And therefore, this word of judgment is not against his sons, but against him, the father, and his responsibilities. It's incredible, isn't it? But we need to hear it. Well, that's the message that Samuel heard. And so verse 15 tells us, so Samuel lay down until morning. I bet he didn't sleep. I think he would have laid there with his eyes wide open. What am I going to do with this? This is awful. He wake up the next morning. He did what he often did. He opened the doors of the Lord's house and he was afraid, it says, to tell Eli the vision. Most of us would be, I think, afraid to deliver a word of judgment. Most of us are much more either soft-hearted or not wanting to hurt people. There aren't many people, there are some, there aren't many people whom God has either equipped or called who have uh, a joy in delivering a word of judgment. Jonah would be one. He had great joy in saying to the people of Nineveh, in 40 days God's going to wipe you out. No, 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 no. He wanted them judged. But Samuel wasn't like that. He loved Eli. However, the next morning, remember, God had said to Samuel, tell Eli. He wasn't going to. He didn't want to. Next morning, Eli gets up, says good morning to Samuel. Then he says, Samuel, what did the Lord say? Don't conceal anything from me. If you hide anything, then God will judge you. And more so, more severely, if you hide or conceal anything. So that was enough to provoke Samuel to tell him everything. Verse 18. He didn't hold back anything. And then you get Eli's response. What do you think this is? And then Eli said, the Lord will do what he pleases. The Lord will do 
what he pleases. The Lord will do what is right. Is that Eli being submissive? Is that Eli accepting it, saying it's the Lord, he is right? And if he's going to judge, then so be it. He's a righteous, holy God. He would never do anything wrong. Is that Eli being submissive to this awful word of judgment? If it is, then we can certainly learn that godly people will always receive, eventually receive, even God's or harsh words of discipline, will receive words of correction, will receive uncomfortable truths, godly people, people who have a heart for God, if Samuel's being submissive. It's possible also uh, that, uh, that Eli rather is being just fatalistic. Okay, Sarah, Sarah. Uh, the Lord will do what he pleases. I have no intentions of changing my lifestyle. I have no intentions of doing anything about my sons. Uh, what's been going on is going to continue to go on and when God's ready, he'll kill us. It's fatalistic. It's this, I'm not going to do anything about it. The Lord's going to do what the Lord wants to do. Is that what happened? Well, either way, only God knows what was in Eli's heart. But for us, when God speaks a word of correction to us, we need to be receptive and responsive to it. I do think when God gives a word of judgment, it's always, always with a view to repentance. And even though God had said here, that you have gone beyond the point of no return. It's irreversible. I still think God was expecting and desiring repentance. Judgment would still come, but it should come upon a repentant soul. And who knows? The Lord is quite capable and has in the past that even he will delay judgment in mercy when he sees repentance. So that which the chapter began with, verse 1, that the word of the Lord was rare in those days, revelatory visions were infrequent, has now been reversed. God has spoken and has spoken very clearly. It's a word of judgment through Samuel to Eli and his house. So the chapter concludes, preparing us for what's coming. Samuel continued to grow and the Lord was with him. None of his prophecies fell to the ground unfulfilled. There were other times when God spoke through Samuel and it happened just like he said, just like this one is going to in the next chapter. All Israel from Dan, way up in the north, to Beersheba, way down in the south, all Israel from Sydney to Perth, all the country, knew that Samuel was a prophet of the Lord. The Lord continued to appear in Shiloh to Samuel and Samuel revealed the word of the Lord to all of Israel. The word of God was rare. God has now, in the process of replacing leadership, provided the most valuable resource he could give, his word. He didn't give a new structure or a new government. He provided his word. God always leads his people back to his word, by his word. He is not silence. We can hear from him through his word, the Bible. We can believe it and we can certainly obey it. It's amazing, isn't it? The holy God, the great God, the creator of all things wants to say something to us. The question is, like Franklin Roosevelt was saying, are we listening? God wants to speak. 
We know, and we've visited this on numerous occasions before, that the will of God for us, what God wants us to do, is in the word of God. For all Christians, it's in here. I met with a couple of different people during this week, and they have stuff going on in their lives, and what amazed me, in these encounters, people were saying... This is what God wants me to do. I have peace about it. They're disobeying. They're sinning. They're doing the wrong thing. So I'm meeting with them. And they, all of them, were quite confident because they felt okay. They felt relief. They felt, I guess they would use the word peace. And I looked them in the eye and I just said to them, it's not true. How are you with God? Yeah, we're good, we're close. Can't be. I'll show you what the Bible says. The Bible says this. You're doing that. God says, don't do that. And you're doing it. So how can you be pleasing God at that point? The will of God for us is in the word of God. That's rock-solid foundation for us as we follow the Lord Jesus. But this book teaches us also that God speaks to us like he spoke to Samuel. The Bible is filled with hundreds, maybe thousands, hundreds of examples of the diverse ways that God speaks. God speaks to us personally. And this passage reminds us of that truth. God can speak truth into your mind and into your heart by his spirit. It's not in the Bible, so it's beyond the scriptures, but it's for you personally. The truth that God has for all of his people is in the Bible. That's for all of us. But the truth that God has for me, God can speak to me. And that's not for anybody else. It's just for me. It's like 1 John 3.22, there's an allusion to this that when we pray and ask God for things, we know that he hears us because we keep his commandments in the book and we do those things that are pleasing to him. God speaks to us through the scriptures, but God speaks to us also through his spirit. They are not equal. This one has authority. This one is the one that this one must submit to. But... God can speak to us. We, like Samuel, need to do two things. One, recognise it is God's voice. And number two, be faithful to what he requires of us. How do you recognise if it's God speaking to you? Well, I've taught on this over the years, but this is like rapid fire and I'm out of time. But here are the six quick ways. You can write it down. We'll come back and talk about this another time. When God speaks to us by his spirit, whether it's by a thought, whether it's by an impression, whether it's through somebody else, you're hearing a word and the spirit tugs on your heartstrings and he goes, that's for you. That's what I want you to do. When God speaks to you, check it against the Bible because God will never tell you to do something that is contrary to the scriptures. That's why the Bible is so important. It's our foundation. It's our plumb line. This is... The checklist. God will never contradict his word. 
or his character, which is revealed to us in the scriptures. So is God asking you to do something? Is it in line with his scriptures? Secondly, the book of Proverbs talks about godly counsel. If God says something to you, go and find some other very godly people, people you trust, and say, I think God is saying this to me. We need to be careful at that point of not being too arrogant. God said to me, because we are frail, fallen creatures, we can get it wrong. And sometimes, you know, it's the spaghetti bolognese from the night before which is speaking to you, not God speaking to you. So you need to check it. Check it with some godly counsellors, some close spiritual buddies. Um, I think there is a test about peace in the heart. Uh, but there's a lot of teaching to go with that, but primarily if God is Lord of your life and you're walking in obedience, he will confirm what he says to you through a sense of inner calm. Um, I'll leave it there. Uh, When God speaks to you, it may very well contradict and go in conflict with human wisdom because his ways are higher than our ways. Uh, God will speak to us in ways that will take us beyond our comfort zone, so he will challenge our faith, number five. And it will require courage, therefore, to respond to it, like Joshua chapter 1. And finally, if God is speaking to you and it passes the test of scripture, it passes the test of godly counsel, there is peace in your heart and life. It's contrary to human wisdom, or it may be. It doesn't matter. God can do that sort of stuff. It's challenging faith and it requires courage on your behalf. And the last thing I have to say quickly is be cautious. God's never in a hurry. If you feel God... If God is prompting you, sell your car, sell your house and give all your money to the senior pastor of the church, then obey. (laughs) Then go cautious. God is never in a hurry. He prepares you for things and it's coming. And then at the end he'll say, now. But he's been preparing you. The Lord I know doesn't tend to say, okay, I called you to go this way, now I want you to go this way. He can do that, call you to go this way and he wants you to go that way but it'll be a process that he will take you through. Anyway, caution. A couple of other things just very quickly, I know time is gone. Um, Judge everything always by the Bible. Be very careful when you're talking to others, God said to me. Be very open to maybe you got it wrong. And this word, please don't feel that you are unspiritual if God has not spoken to you like he seems to speak to others. If you really want God to speak to you, then let him know that you're open like Samuel. Speak, Lord, your servant is listening. And you can hear from God through the Bible. Go back to the Bible and read that often for as much as you can. Excuse me. So recognise God's voice. Learn to do that. It's a process. And then be faithful to what he requires of you. Be faithful to what he requires of you. I want to finish by simply asking you these half a dozen questions about that. Have you been faithful to what God has asked you to do? This is true both. Are you faithful to what God says to all believers in the Bible? Are you following the scriptures? Are you obedient to it? One of our staff devotions this week, one of the staff members said to me, you seem to be obsessed with obedience. (laughs) I said, yes, I am. It seems to me God is obsessed with obedience. Obedience is top priority to him. If you love me, obey me.
So are you obedient? If there's any area of disobedience that you are aware of, don't toy with it, don't delay, deal with it. Repent. Be serious about it. Are you obedient to the other spirit promptings like David and Sally? Spirit prompting them. I want you to leave your job and I want you to go do this. Are you obedient to those dimensions of what God has said to you personally? Question one. When was the last time you clearly heard God speak to you? When was the last time God spoke to you? Think about that. Talk about that amongst yourselves after the service today. How has God spoken to you? Has he spoken to you in different ways? Talk about that with one another. Third, what adjustments do you think you need to make in order to hear God? What adjustments to your life will you need to make in order for you to hear from God? One of the reasons we don't hear from God or some people don't hear from God is our lives are so full, so busy, we don't take time to listen. What adjustments do you need to make in your life in order to hear from God? Here's a good question. What other voices are competing for your attention? What other voices are you listening to? The world, entertainment, friends, yourself. What voices have priority? Which voice are you listening to? If God did speak to you, or should I say, when God speaks to you, do you have a trusted other, a counsellor, a Christian buddy or friend, someone that you can go to and say, I think God is saying this to me, someone you can evaluate that with. Do you have a trusted other? And if you don't, what can you do about that? And then finally, the Lord Jesus says in John thirteen seventeen, if you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. If you know this stuff, that's not it. It's you're blessed if you do it, of listening. So are you obeying everything that God is telling you? Are there some things that God has already said to you in the past and he hasn't spoken since because you haven't done it? He won't speak until you do it. He will not increase your levels of disobedience. He will wait and want you to be obedient to what he has already asked you to do. Let our attitude be like Samuel. Speak, Lord. Your servant is listening. We're going to pray. Let's pray together. Sovereign Lord, your greatness 